Chapter Eight, Part Two of The Story of the Atlantic Telegraph. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Story of the Atlantic Telegraph by Henry M. Field. Chapter Eight, Part Two. The landing of the cable took place on Wednesday, the 5th of August, near the hour of sunset. As it was too late to proceed that evening, the ships remained at anchor till the morning. They got under way at an early hour, but were soon checked by an accident which detained them another day. Before they had gone five miles, the heavy shore end of the cable caught in the machinery and parted. The Niagara put back, and the cable was underrun the whole distance. At length the end was lifted out of the water and spliced to the gigantic coil, and as it was dropped safely to the bottom of the sea, the mighty ship began to stir. At first she moved very slowly, not more than two miles an hour, to avoid the danger of accident, but the feeling that they were at last away was itself a relief. The ships were all in sight, and so near that they could hear each other's bells. The Niagara, as if knowing that she was bound for the land out of whose forest she came, bowed her head to the waves as her prow was turned toward her native shores. Slowly passed the hours of that day, but all went well, and the ships were moving out into the broad Atlantic. At length the sun went down in the west, and stars came out on the face of the deep. But no man slept. A thousand eyes were watching a great experiment, as those who have personal interest in the issue. All through that night, and through the anxious days and nights that followed, there was a feeling in every soul on board, as if some dear friend were at the turning point of life or death, and they were watching beside him. There was a strange, unnatural silence in the ship. Men paced the deck with soft and muffled tread, speaking only in whispers, as if a loud voice or a heavy footfall might snap the vital cord. So much had they grown to feel for the enterprise that the cable seemed to them like a human creature, on whose fate they hung, as if it were to decide their own destiny. There are some who will never forget that first night at sea. Perhaps the reaction from the excitement on shore made the impression the deeper. There are moments in life when everything comes back upon us. What memories came up in those long night hours, how many on board that ship as they stood on the deck and watched that mysterious cord disappearing in the darkness, thought of homes beyond the sea, of absent ones, of the distant and the dead. But no musings turned them from the work in hand. There are vigilant eyes on deck. Mr. Bright, the engineer of the company, is there, and Mr. Everett, Mr. DeSalty, the electrician, and Professor Morse. The paying-out machinery does its work, and though it makes a constant rumble in the ship, that dull, heavy sound is music to their ears, as it tells them that all is well. If one should drop to sleep and wake up at night, he is only to hear the sound of the old coffee-mill, and his fears are relieved, and he goes to sleep again. Saturday was a day of beautiful weather. The ships were getting farther away from land, and began to steam ahead at the rate of four and five miles an hour. The cable was paid out at a speed a little faster than that of the ship, to allow for any inequalities of surface on the bottom of the sea. While it was thus going overboard, communication was kept up constantly with the land. Every moment the current was passing between ship and shore. The communication was as perfect as between Liverpool and London, or Boston and New York. Not only did the electricians telegraph back to Valentia the progress they were making, but the officers on board sent messages to their friends in America to go out by the steamers from Liverpool. The heavens seemed to smile on them that day. The coils came up from below the deck without a kink, and unwinding themselves easily, passed over the stern into the sea. Once or twice an alarm was created by the cable being thrown off the wheels. 
This was owing to the sheaves not being wide enough and deep enough, and being filled with tar, which hardened in the air. This was a great defect of the machinery, which was remedied in the later expeditions. Still it worked well, and so long as those terrible breaks kept off their iron gripe, it might work through to the end. All day Sunday the same favoring fortune continued, and when the officers who could be spared from the deck met in the cabin, and Captain Hudson read the service, it was with subdued voices and grateful hearts they responded to the prayers to him who spreadeth out the heavens and ruleth the raging of the sea. On Monday they were over two hundred miles at sea. They had got far from beyond the shallow waters of the coast. They had passed over the submarine mountain which figures on the charts of Damon and Berryman, and where Mr. Bright's log gives a descent from five hundred and fifty to seventeen hundred and fifty fathoms within eight miles. Then they came to the deeper waters of the Atlantic, where the cable sank to the awful depth of two thousand fathoms. Still the iron cord buried itself in the waves, and every instant the flash of light in the darkened telegraph room told of the passage of the electric current. But Monday evening, about nine o'clock, occurred a mysterious interruption, which staggered all on board. Suddenly the electrical continuity was lost. The cable was not broken, but it ceased to work. Here was a mystery. Desati tried it, and Professor Morse tried it, but neither could make it work. It seemed that all was over. The electricians gave it up, and the engineers were preparing to cut the cable and to endeavor to wind it in, when suddenly the electricity came back again. This made the mystery greater than ever. It had been interrupted for two and a half hours. This was a phenomenon which has never been explained. Professor Morse was of the opinion that the cable in getting off the wheels had been strained so as to open the gutta percha and thus destroy the installation. If this be the true explanation, it would seem that on reaching the bottom the seam had closed, and thus the continuity had been restored. But it was certainly an untoward incident which cast ominous conjecture on the whole success, as it seemed to indicate that there were at the bottom of the sea causes which were wholly unknown and against which it was impossible to provide. The return of the cart was like from the dead, says Mullaly, the glad news was soon circulated throughout the ship, and all felt as if they had a new life. A rough, weather-beaten old sailor, who had assisted in coiling many a long mile of it on board the Niagara, and who was moving the first to run to the telegraph office to have the news confirmed, said he would have given fifty dollars out of his pay to have saved the cable. I have watched nearly every mile of it, he added, as it came over the side, and I would have given fifty dollars poor as I am to have saved it, although I don't expect to make anything by it when it is laid down. In his own simple way he expressed the feelings of every one on board, for all are as much interested in the success of the enterprise as the largest shareholder in the company. They talked of the cable as they would of a pet child, and never was child treated with deeper solicitude than that which the cable was watched by them. You could see the tears standing in the eyes of some as they almost cried for joy and told their messmates that it was all right. It was indeed a great relief and though still anxious, after watching till past midnight, a few crept to their couches to snatch an hour or two of broken sleep, but before the morning broke, the hope thus revived were again and finally destroyed. The cable was running out freely at the rate of six miles an hour, while the ship was advancing, but about four. This was supposed to be owing to a powerful undercurrent. To check this waste, the engineer applied the brakes firmly, which at once stopped the machine. The effect was to bring a heavy strain on the cable that was in the water. The stem of the ship was down in the trough of the sea, as it rose upward on the swell. The tension was too great, and the cable parted. Instantly ran through the ship a cry of grief and dismay. 
she was stopped in her onward path, and in a few minutes all gathered on deck with feelings which may be imagined. One who was present wrote, The unbidden tear started to many a manly eye. The interest taken in the enterprise by all, every one, officers and men, exceeded anything I ever saw, and there is no wonder that there should have been so much emotion at our failure. Captain Hudson says, It made all hands of us through the day like a household or family which had lost their dearest friend, for officers and men had been deeply interested in the success of the enterprise. There was nothing left but to return to England. The position is very clearly stated by Mr. Field in a letter to one of his family, which shows how his own courage survived the great disaster. H. M. Steamer Leopard, Thursday, August thirteenth, 1857 The successful laying of the Atlantic Telegraph Cable was put off for a short time, but its final triumph has been fully proved by the experience that we have had since we left Valentia. My confidence was never so strong as at the present time, and I feel sure that with God's blessing we shall connect Europe and America with the electric cord. After having successfully laid, and part of the time while a heavy sea was running, 335 miles of the cable, and over 100 miles of it in water, more than two miles in depth, the brakes were applied more firmly, by order of Mr. Bright, the engineer, to prevent the cable from going out so fast, and it parted. I retired to my stateroom at a little after midnight Monday, all going on well, and a quarter before four o'clock on Tuesday morning, the eleventh instant, I was awoke from my sleep by the cry of, Stop her! Back her! And in a moment Mr. Bright was in my room, with the sad intelligence that the cable was broken. In as short a time as possible I was dressed and on deck, and Captain Hudson at once signaled the other steamers that the cable had parted, and in a few moments Captain Wainwright of the Leopard and Captain Sands of the Susquehanna one board of the Niagara. I requested Captain Wainwright, the commander of the English Telegraph Fleet, to order the Agamemnon to remain with the Niagara and Susquehanna in this deep part of the Atlantic for a few days, to try certain experiments which will be of great value to us, and then sail with them back to England, and all way to Plymouth until further orders. I further requested Captain Wainwright to order the Cyclops to sound here where the cable parted, and then steam back to Valentia, with letters from me to Dr. Whitehouse and Master Saward, the secretary of the Atlantic Telegraph Company, and that he should take me in the Leopard as soon as possible to Portsmouth. All of my requests were cheerfully complied with, and in a few hours the Cyclops had sounded, and found the bottom at two thousand fathoms, and was on her way back to Valentia, with letters from me. The Niagara and the Agonemnon were connected together by the cable, and engaged in trying experiments the Susquehanna in attendance, and the leopard with your affectionate on board on her way back to England. In my letter to Dr. Whitehouse, I requested him to telegraph to London, and have a special meeting of the directors, called for twelve o'clock on Saturday, to decide whether we should have more cable made at once, and try again this season, or wait until next year. I shall close this letter on board, so as to have it ready to mail the moment we arrive at Portsmouth, as I wish to leave by the very next train for London so as to be there in time to meet the directors Saturday noon, and read them my report, which I am busy making up. Do not think that I feel discouraged, or am in low spirits, for I am not, and I think I can see how this accident will be of great advantage to the Atlantic Telegraph Company. All the officers and men on board of the Telegraph Fleet seem to take the greatest interest in our enterprise, and are very desirous to go out in the ships the next time. Since my arrival, I have received the greatest kindness and attention from all whom I have met, from the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland down to the cabin boys and sailors. The enclosed letter from the Knight of Kerry I received with a basket of hot-house fruit, 
just as we are getting ready to leave Valentia Harbor. Your Cyrus W. Field The day that this was written, Mr. Field landed at Portsmouth, and at once hastened to London to meet the directors. At first it was a question if they should renew the expedition this year, but their brief experience had shown the need of more ample preparations for their next attempt. They required six hundred miles more of cable to make up for over three hundred lost in the sea, and to provide a surplus so as to run no risk of falling short from other accidents. And most of all, they needed better machinery to pay out the cable into the ocean. These preparations required time, and before they could be made, it would be late in the autumn. Hence they reluctantly decided to defer the expedition till another year. The Niagara and the Agamemnon, therefore, discharged their cable at Plymouth, whence the Niagara returned home, and Mr. Field, after remaining a few weeks in London to complete the preparations for the next year, sailed for America. He returned to find that a commercial hurricane had swept over the country, in which a thousand stately fortunes had gone down, and in which the wealth he had accumulated by years of toil had nearly suffered shipwreck. Such were the tidings that met him on landing. It had been a year of disappointments in England and America, of disasters on land and sea, and all his high hopes were in the deep bosom of the ocean buried. End of chapter 8, part 2 Recorded by Alexi Talander www.bookbanter.net